this car is the most honest car you ever seen. It's been a dream ever since I've had it. The first time I heard that engine screaming, I thought, I gotta have one of those. For me, the cars have personality. What's great about a BMW Classic is the community that surrounds it. When you listen to that, <laughs> that's why we're here. Welcome to Classic Heart, the BMW Group Classic Podcast. This is JP, and our guest today is, and I think that's super fair to say, a BMW specialist, fan, enthusiast, and BMW nut. So a very warm welcome to journalist, author, and car head, Jackie Jure. Hello, Jackie. Hi. Good morning, actually, for you. <laughs> It is morning. Yes, it's very early in the morning here on the West Coast of the United States, but I'm happy to be up and talking to you. That's so kind. Thank you so much for this. And um, I think we're going to touch many BMW points. And let's just jump right into the conversation about BMW. So for those in the BMW and in the automotive world of the US and globally do not know your name, please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I am a journalist and I write history. Generally speaking, I write the history of BMW, which is a subject I became fairly fluent in as the editor of Bimmer magazine for 17 years. Um, prior to that, I had edited a motorcycle magazine in San Francisco called City Bike, which is, if I do say so myself, just something of a legend. Um, not me. I'm not the legend. The magazine was legendary for being kind of wild, kind of fun. And after that, obviously, I moved to Bimmer Magazine. I edited that for 17 years. And since that magazine closed down, I've been writing about BMW as a freelance journalist, historian. I've been writing books for the BMW CCA Foundation in conjunction with each of its six exhibits. And I've also been writing some books under my own imprint about BMW topics that interested me. It's a lot of Bs, it's a lot of Ms, and a lot of Ws <laughs> in your Vita, I would say. Yes. And working with the motorcycle magazine, did you also touch field with BMW motorcycles, or is that different kind of motorcycles? It was really more about sport bikes, but yes, I did touch base with BMW motorcycles um, to a lesser degree than other marks like Suzuki and Ducati and Honda. But um, that was really just a personal preference of mine. I mean, I love BMW motorcycles. They're great. And actually, here's an odd story. A long, long time ago, I took a break from graduate school to ride a BMW R68 with a sidecar around Ireland. Really? Yes. How did that happen? Um, purely by chance. I was on my way to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> and I took a detour starting in London and uh, picked up a motorcycle with a sidecar there. And a friend of mine, you know, rode it down to Wales, took the ferry to Cork, rode it around Ireland. I ended up staying in Dublin for a while. And uh, it was just, it was an odd adventure. I'll, I'll put it that way. Hmm. But it was, it was interesting and it was very picturesque because, as you know, old BMW motorcycles look really cool, especially when they have a Steib sidecar attached to them. And, you know, but it was, it was wet damp, cold, and, and fairly miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like the Kerrygold butter advertisements you see where you see like the green fields and the, the endless 
grass and stuff like this. Oh no, it does look like that, but unfortunately, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there's there's oh, uh, well, at least back in the, you know this was a long time ago. This was before Ireland had really entered the European Union in full force, mm-hmm. and so you know. Food felt hard to come by, and beer was not hard to come by, and it was just—it was a different time. <laughs> so, if I think it's it's uh, okay to ask because it was like you did a break in your education. So, how old were you when you started that tour? Oh, twenty-seven. Wow! What did your parents say about this? I mean, they thought you're on your way to Berlin, right? At Twenty-seven. Your parents don't really have much to say about what you do. <laughs> no, that's for sure. But you know, I still. You know, I'm forty-four. I still tell my parents where I'm going, uh, because otherwise they got like overexcited calls. Where are you? What are you doing? Are you fine? And it's just a text or like a call. Where are you? So twenty-seven. You going from the states to Ireland while you were on your way to Berlin. By the way, what were you start trying to do in Berlin? Just visiting. Just wanted to hang out. Berlin was really... Okay, this was before the wall came down. So Berlin was really a very cool place to be. And I was living in San Francisco, and there was a lot of uh, back and forth, I think, between people in, you know, certain areas of the music business. And of course, I was writing about music at the time. I wasn't writing about motorcycles and cars. Mm-hmm. And so it was really just a hip place to be, Yeah, you know, just to be there and walk around and take photographs. And, you yeah. know, it was all very moody, atmospheric, so, and great museums, obviously. And I, I love looking at art. So it was really paradise in many ways. Were this the David Bowie years when he was in Berlin? Uh, this would have been... Uh, 87, 88. So I think a little bit after that. Cool. Do you still have the photos? I, you know, I do. I don't have the negatives, unfortunately, but I do still have some of the photos. In fact, I just posted a few of them on Instagram not too long ago. And they're pretty good. I was shooting with a Nikon F back in the day with some really good lenses and shooting on film. <laughs> so yes. yeah, it, it was it was really well suited to black and white photography back then. Wow, mega. So everyone listening in, just stop by at uh, Jackie's Instagram. What's your Instagram handle? Jackie Jure. Simple. <laughs> I think that's, thank you for making our life easy peasy. That's very cool. So, I try. But, <laughs> thank you. But let us jump back to the drive in Ireland, because I think that's something where many people dream of doing like a road trip through Ireland. Mm-hmm. You said it was a bit miserable. Was it only because of the weather or were there other things that were not so exciting? Well, I think when you come from California, which I did, you often go places with the assumption that the weather will be pleasant wherever you're going. Yes. Which it usually is in California. It's rare to have bad weather. And arriving in Ireland in September... Um, sort of lulled us into a false sense of security with regard to the weather. Yes. And I didn't really have rain gear. I think I brought a leather jacket and some jeans and a pair of Dr. Martin boots and a helmet that wasn't very good. <laughs> and yes, it was miserable. <laughs> it was really, you know, poor preparation. But I also think, too, that any motorcycle journey has to entail at least some element of misery. Yes. You know, it's it's not a comfortable way to travel. It's not um, it's not meant to insulate you 
from the elements, from the weather, from the experience of being in that moment, in that time and place. Yeah. And I think that's part of the magic of motorcycles. It's it's why we like riding them, because they make us feel alive in in every possible way. And that can be good and that can be bad. I hope that the good things are overwhelmingly in your motorcycle history. Oh, so, yeah. um, but I totally get that. And even <laughs> though I'm not a motorcycle guy, uh, a very short time I owned, uh, what was it called? Harley Davidson? I even forgot the name. It was a very small one, not very nice one. And I think, no, no, two wheels, not for me, too heavy. I'm too heavy <laughs> for two wheels. It's, the weight distribution is on four wheels much better than on two. But I totally get that, especially if you like see on social media, in movies, documentaries about people traveling the world on the motorbike. And I mean, that's another level of freedom. Would you, would you say that? Another level of freedom than going with a car or with the camper van? Well, you know, I'm going to refer to what my friend Ted Simon said when I interviewed him for the first time about his um, motorcycle adventures riding around the world in 74 mm -hmm. and then later. You know, he talked about motorcycles in adventure travel as really a means to engage with people in conversation. He said, if yeah. you arrive somewhere in a car, you're boring. Mm. Everybody has a car, but when you arrive on a motorcycle, you're immediately of interest to people. Mm -hmm. Where did you come from? How far have you gone? You know, some friends of mine and I ride to Mexico on our bikes mm -hmm. and, and always had wonderful interactions with local people there and in Norway, same thing, and obviously in Ireland as well. Um, I think it's really, you're sort of making yourself open, and which is vulnerable as well, but you're making yourself open to engagement. And unfortunately, I don't think a car really does that. I think it, that's its primary disadvantage as a travel vehicle is that it does sort of put us in a pod, take us from one place to another. And, mm. and we don't really have that built-in excuse to have conversations with people we've never met before. Whereas a motorcycle is exactly the opposite. But for traveling in general, what makes you leave home? Why you want to leave the known and want to go into the unknown. So what is the driver behind that? I think that a lot of people are governed by fear. They're governed by fear of the unknown. They are afraid of, I don't know what, but, you know, sometimes afraid of having their ideas challenged. And I'm not. Yeah. I actually enjoy that. And I think, you know, travel in itself is educational. It opens the mind. I mean, certainly it helps if you do it on your own rather than, you know, in an organized group, because that has a tendency to insulate you from a local reality. Yeah. Because when you can't speak the language, when you don't know how to do something really simple, like buy a bus ticket, you know, because you don't know the system and yeah. all those kinds of things, they have a way of breaking down your ego. And, and in a way that I think can be really healthy if you respond to it correctly, which is with humility. Yeah. And I think that that type of, that type of experience can help you become more receptive to learning and, and more receptive to change and basically just more open-minded in general. And so I think that it's really healthy sometimes to put yourself in a situation where you are not advantaged at all.
where yeah. in fact you're disadvantaged in every way. Yeah. I think this is a very interesting approach to traveling and life in general. And I'm sure that the motorcyclists amongst our listeners can definitely identify with your statement. Um, let's now switch topic a little bit and speak about your books on cars. What is the fascination about cars and history, or perhaps rather cars in history? For me, the, the car thing, I think I really entered that with passion by looking at them almost as individual works of art mm -hmm. and as things which could serve as a portal to fascinating historical stories. And by fascinating historical stories, what I mean specifically is that each of these cars has a journey of its own. You know, it's created within a particular time and place and the events that are happening around it shape it in a way. And I don't mean necessarily literally, although obviously design is, is very much of its time. But whatever the economic factors are that drive certain decisions with regard to technical development, um, you know, whatever the political considerations are, which, which force a manufacturer to make certain decisions, um, all of these things factor into how a car is created and what its outcome is. Yeah. And then once that happens, the car follows a path which is, again, of its time. You know, it encounters certain people who, you know, live lives that are obviously, you know, dependent upon history for their outcome. And, you know, and as we follow it through, let's say, a 50 or 60 or an 80, 90-year period, we can learn so much about history itself simply by following the path that this object, you know, this inanimate object takes through time. And that to me is where this gets really interesting. And that's why I, I love writing BMW history so much, because a lot of what I do is tracing the history, not of the mark, but of an individual vehicle. Yeah. You know, that's fascinating because I would have never the patience to write a book. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> May I ask, how many books have you written about BMW? Uh, ten, with two more on the way. And what are your other hobbies? <laughs> oh, I do any? all kinds <laughs> of things, actually. I, I go out to hear a lot of music. I mm -hmm. um, really like going out to hear live jazz. I go swimming. I take long walks. I ride my bicycle, um, hang out with my friends. Yeah. You know, all kinds of things. So what was your first book about? And isn't it very difficult to write a book in general? I wrote the first one actually for the BMW CCA Foundation. And it was meant to catalog their exhibit called Heroes of Bavaria. And it was... What a title. Yeah, it was a great title, actually. You could never use that in Germany, actually. Oh, it was a fabulous exhibit. And yeah. it really featured all of the great BMW race cars that had raced primarily in North America, but also some from Europe. And it was a five-week project to write the complete histories of 25 race cars. Wow. And I don't know how I did it. You know, I mean, that one, I was just like, I think I must have, you know, slept four hours a night or something to get that done. But It was really fun to do, and fortunately, I think I already had a pretty good handle on the history of most of those cars. But, you know, once you've done one of anything, the second one is easier, the third one is easier still, because you have a process. Yes. And in the case of the subsequent books, there have been, 
We've published five books on the exhibits. So, you know, those have fixed topics because you have a set of cars or, you know, in the case of the forthcoming book, this is going to be celebrating BMW's 100th anniversary as a motorcycle manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you kind of just go, you make a list and you start going down the list and you just, you know, complete the process. I think, you know, having been an editor-in-chief for 20 years, you know how to do things. You know, you know how to finish projects. You know how to get something across the finish line because that's the job. The job mm -hmm. is organization and it's completing a set of tasks. You know, it's really just, it's a checklist and you just keep working until it's done. Is it fair to say, Jackie, that research is a key part of creating a book? Checking all the bits and pieces of information you find somewhere, verify them, counter-check them. I mean, that's quite a lot of work. Um, I really enjoy the research. I mean, you know, my favorite part of the process is when, you know, I'm sitting at my desk and there's, you know, 20 books scattered behind me and other documents, you know, printed out and laid all over the floor. And, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I just, I love digging around for facts. But I think that, you know, one thing I would say that is actually really important is that, um, do your research, make sure it's correct. If you're not sure, ask questions. There are always people who know more than you do. Yes. There are always sources that you can refer to in order to determine what is accurate and what is not. And I think that to me is kind of the fascinating aspect of history because we're always building on what came before us. And the question really becomes, what can I add to this story? Jackie, there's one particular story where you add a lot to all of the information floating around. It's the BMW 507 owned by the king, Elvis Presley. I mean, a car that is owned by one of the most famous person on this planet. That itself is a big source for many, many different stories. So what was your driver to write the story about Elvis Presley's BMW 507? It was misinformation about the guy who owned the car. Mm -hmm. And he was, his name was Jack Castor. He was a really interesting cat. He was a rocket scientist, literally. And his daily driver was a Ferrari 250 uh, California Spider. Good choice. And, yeah, good choice. I mean, he was not a rich man. He was mm. as broke as you can get, but he had really interesting cars You know, as Harley, Hardy Mutchler said, you know, he had nothing but his cars. You know, that was where, yeah. you know, his, his passion lay and, and everything else. I mean, when I met him, he was living on a reverse mortgage and driving a Ferrari, you know. Yeah. So, um, but people were writing that he had sold the car to BMW. And that mm -hmm. was absolutely not true. He had given the car to the BMW Museum. And it was really important to me that... Jack's generosity and Jack's having done the right thing for the car and for history was not forgotten. Yeah. But in the end, it's very interesting to understand how you end up writing the book about that particular car. I mean, the book is called Finding Elvis 507. How did you find it eventually? Well, let's actually, let's go back to 2005. Okay, so okay. BMW released a photograph, and for some reason, they chose to 
run a photograph of Elvis taking delivery or taking the keys to a 507. And this was in 2005. And I saw this and I thought, well, that's interesting. I didn't know Elvis had a 507. I didn't know there were any connection between Elvis and a 507. So I started looking around and I found that, I believe it was Barrett Jackson, had auctioned off a 507 in California that it presented as Elvis's 507. Mm-hmm. So they had a um, serial number attached to that, 70192. And I was looking at Dr. Carl Heinz Longa's book about the 507. What became obvious is that the, the, the facts didn't line up, that 70192 could not have been the car that Elvis drove in Frankfurt while he was with the U.S. Army. Because it just, you know, there were just logistical concerns that, you know, made that impossible. Yeah. So it was possible to figure out through deductive reasoning that Elvis's car had really been 70079. And mm-hmm. Dr. Longa didn't state that. He believed that to be true, but he had no proof. And he, I think, was prohibited by BMW from making that claim. You know, because BMW technically does not communicate serial numbers. So I wrote a back page, which was a little historical vignette in the back page of the magazine, of Bimmer magazine, asking if anyone knew where 70079 was, because I Mm -hmm. thought that was the Elvis car. And there was a guy named John Harper in Anniston, Alabama, who was a subscriber. He was also the founder of the United States um, BMW Vintage Motorcycle Club, somebody I'm actually still in touch with and who's been helping me on this current exhibit. Yeah. And he knew Jack Castor. Mr. Rocket Science. Exactly, who was living in Half Moon Bay, California. He told Jack about this, and Jack called me. And as it turned out, I mean, this is this is the most amazing thing. So Jack owned 70079. He thought it was the Elvis car too, but he didn't have any proof. But he said, yes. you know, it doesn't run. You're welcome to come down and look at it. The car was within 50 miles of my office. You know, of, of all the places for that car to be, it was within an hour's drive. You know, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was. So, how are the odds? The odds are minuscule, but it happened. Yeah. And so, Helmut Verb came up from Los Angeles to do the photography, and we went to Jack's pumpkin warehouse. In well, it wasn't his pumpkin warehouse, but he had his cars stored in a corner of a pumpkin warehouse in Half Moon Bay, California, or Pescadero, and we pulled the tarp off this thing for the first time in like 30 years. And there it was. And, you know, <laughs> I think I, I still laugh about this now because, I mean, I can still feel the excitement yes. of doing that, you know, of, of seeing this car for the first time that was Elvis's. It was like finding the Shroud of Turin. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I know this is absurd, but, you know, if you're a car freak, this is kind of, you know, it really is the Holy Grail, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, so Helmet took a lot of photos. I got the story. I looked at all Jack's documentation and I wrote a story in Bimmer and that kind of opened the floodgates in a certain sense um, with respect to a lot of things, primarily that Jack started getting a lot of offers for the car. You know, I think somebody offered him like $12 million for it, but he, what he really didn't want that car to do was to disappear. 
Yes. He really felt like, you know, as an historically significant BMW, it belonged in the BMW Museum and it belonged where people could see it. So, you know, that opened the door to contact with BMW Classic, BMW Mobile Tradition, and specifically with Manfred Grunert and Klaus Kutcher. Yeah. And they brokered a deal whereby Jack left them the car in his will. Um, they actually took delivery of it before that because the deal really was a little bit more complicated. He had two Ferrari, I mean, well, he had a couple of Ferraris, but he had two 507s. He had 70079, the ex-Hanstuck, ex-Elvis car. Yeah, Hanstuck had raced this car. This was actually the factory demonstrator that BMW had used and which Hanstuck had used to demonstrate the car's performance to journalists back in the 50s. That's new to me, actually. Crazy. This car had an incredible history. And that part was really well documented. You know, that okay. was that was the part that Dr. Long's book acknowledged and which Jack knew. He had all the records of that, etc. And um, so then, you know, after BMW had used it for that purpose, Elvis was looking for a 507 and they gave him that one. They didn't give it to him. They sold it to him or they leased it to him or something like that. But they had the, you know, buried deep within the archive, they had an insurance document with his name on it. So that eventually established, you know, irrefutably the connection between Elvis and 70079. But Jack also owned 70089. Mm-hmm. So he had, you know, two 507s, you know, 10 numbers apart. And that car had actually raced with Helm Glockler against 70079 in period. So these, you know, you've got the Elvis car and you've got the little sister car. That's brilliant. So. It was really a cool thing. And so the deal basically that Jack and BMW Mobile Tradition made was that BMW would restore both cars and they would return the little sister car to Jack in California. Yeah. And he would retain the right to drive the Elvis car whenever he came to Germany. And unfortunately, so they picked up both cars. I wish I could tell you off the top of my head what year this was, 2012, something like that. Um and he died a few months later. Oh, that's a pity. He had a, he had a massive heart attack and just, yeah. you know, never really recovered from it, which was kind of odd because he was, you know, a really fit guy. You know, he was mm-hmm. in his 70s, but he was, uh, you know, a super enthusiastic bicyclist. He had written, he had ridden his bike across the country a few times. He actually held, this is, here's another really weird thing about Jack Astor that nobody really cares about, but is kind of interesting nonetheless. Well, this he is had, the stage for it. Yeah, well, he was the two-time record holder for riding a penny farthing across the United States. Now we and have to explain, know, what is a penny farthing? <laughs> a penny farthing is, is a bicycle with a really giant front wheel on the front uh, and a okay. really small wheel on the back. And you kind of Got sit it. on this weird curved frame and you yes. pedal. It's a direct drive to the front wheel. Yeah. Do you want to know the German name for this? Sure. It's not as romantic as the English one. It's just called Hochrad, which means high bicycle. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because Jack actually insisted that they be called a high rider. He said penny yeah. farthing was kind of derogatory. It is, so, actually. I mean, it's an art form to ride these things. Yeah. And if anyone wants to see Jack riding a penny farthing, a.k.a. a high rider, if you go on YouTube and you search for Jack Caster, C-A-S-T-O-R, High Rider Crash. You can see him (laughs) 
riding down one of the mountain passes in Colorado and getting into a speed wobble of doom and then going tumbling over the front of this thing. It looks really painful. (laughs) (laughs) Horrible. But so everyone... Do that. I'm for sure, Jackie. I'm going to do that right after this this recording. Exactly. I hope you, can you will. be sure about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he was. You know, it sounds like that. This he was like a guy out of this world, actually. Totally. Like Steve McQueen in in Super Cool. Well, I don't know if he was that cool. I mean, he was he was pretty crotchety, actually. Okay. Um, he didn't really like anyone, but he liked me for whatever reason. <laughs> I always think that's kind of flattering, you know. But, yes. Um, I tend to get along with those old weirdos that no one else likes. I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> I mean, these weirdos uh, you always have around in a sense. And I mean, in the most positive way, don't get me wrong. But let's get back to the 507 and this kind of misinformation. Because in the preparation for this uh, podcast, I looked into the history. And I mean, I find so many different information. For example, one time I said that the 507 has been not only owned by Elvis, it has also been uh, the car of Ursula Andres. So where does all this come from? Well, it comes from the initial confusion. And this is where the Barrett-Jackson listing, you know, got that really muddled. Okay. Um, there were there were two cars. There's 70079. That's the car that Elvis had when he was with the U.S. Army in Frankfurt. Yes. and Or near Frankfurt which is believed that he brought back to the United States, but then sold as soon as the car got to New York. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever drove that car in the United States. But as you're probably aware, U.S. service members can still bring vehicles back to the United States on the government's dime. Okay. And so, you know, he took advantage of that, sold the car here. And this is actually a really funny part of the story because The car was sold by a Chrysler dealer in New York City, which makes me wonder if Elvis didn't trade it in on some Chrysler with giant tail fins or something yes, like that, yes, which would like be kind of perfect. But, in gold. Um, <laughs> exactly. And um, it was bought by a DJ from Birmingham, Alabama, who went by the name of Tommy Charles. <laughs> and Tommy Charles was a hot rodder, and I think he raced this car at Daytona even, um, but he took the engine out, he put a Chevy, he put a Corvette V8 in it and, you know, really butchered the thing. It was just horrible. And that's how it was when I saw it for the first time. And I almost wish it had gone unrestored because there were traces of a really fascinating history that were lost when yeah. it was turned back to its eldest state or its Hans Stuck state, which is actually how Jack Castor wanted it. But anyway, um, Tommy Charles not only butchered this car, but there's another really weird intersection here. He had been sort of a, um, kind of a torch singer on, you know, kind of a like trying to be like Frank Sinatra. You know, he sang with yeah. a big band. And that kind of music was already really past its prime when Tommy Charles was doing this. So his style was a little out of date. He wasn't a very charismatic singer. I think, you know, he was, he could hit the notes, but, you know, he didn't have an instantly recognizable voice. He was never going to be a star, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But he became a DJ and he was the guy who organized the burning of the Beatles records in bonfires after John Lennon said they were bigger than, the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. I mean, 
you have to have, you know, it's good that these crazy guys are out there. Otherwise, we couldn't <laughs> sell our stories. But I mean, yeah, yeah. I leave so, no, I, better not to comment. Yeah, but you know, but see, but this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how it's just a car. Yes, it comes off the yes. assembly line, it gets sold, but it's living through its time just like we are. Absolutely. And, and the fact that, you know, tracing the history of Elvis's 507 from its, you know, it's leaving the factory, becoming a factory test car, going to Elvis, coming to New York, ending up with this DJ in Birmingham, Alabama, who lights bonfires of Beatle records. I mean, how yeah. weird is that? You know, I mean, this this is fun stuff to explore. And this is where I really get excited about doing this kind of research because, you know, every time you start going down another rabbit hole, there's more to learn. Absolutely. And there's some weird fact to encounter, you know. <laughs> and I mean, the weird facts, that's the that's the beauty of everything. That's what it makes like sexy in a way. Everything around that. Yeah, it's what makes it fun because, you know, otherwise a car is just a spec sheet. Yeah. True. Jackie, all your research results with all the side stories provide wonderful answers to the question you asked yourself earlier. What can I add to the story? And how you set things right, because legends like to form around legendary cars and just keep being told. Yeah, that happens all the time. And it happens in particular concentration where the subject of Max Hoffman is concerned. And That is something I have actually really worked hard to understand. Um, because Max Hoffman was a really big player in the United States in the 50s and into the 60s and even in the 70s. And there has been a lot of misinformation about his role in the creation of certain cars, um, his role in BMW's business affairs and, and in the business affairs of other car companies that sold cars here. Yeah. Um, And so I wrote a book called BMW in the USA, 1938 to 1975. And I probably should have titled it Max Hoffman because, it, yeah. you know, maybe I'll <laughs> change works. that. Yeah. yeah, it does. Um, I'll just make a second edition and just call it Max Hoffman, the true story or something. <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of time in the BMW archive looking at documents and trying to understand what had really happened. And um, it's really confusing. There's there's a lot of myth making that has gone on around Max Hoffman where he was he was portrayed as sort of um, more creative and more beneficial to the brand than he really was. And in fact, I think if I had to pinpoint one of the prime factors in BMW's near bankruptcy in 1959, it would be Max Hoffman's business dealings. Mm -hmm. And, Interesting. I mean, yeah. that's... Well, it's it, it's not the only factor, but it's certainly a very important one. I think yeah. the, the product strategy was deeply flawed, and that in itself you know, would have doomed the company. But I think that the final nail in the coffin was really pounded in by Max Hoffman, who didn't fulfill his his end of the bargain where, you know, prepayments and investments were concerned and orders. Yes, but I think we have to briefly explain who Max Hoffman was. So Max Hoffman, American importer of European cars with a particular dislike of German cars, by the way. But he then saw a business opportunity there and became the importer or one of the influential importers of BMWs besides Mercedes and Alphas and stuff 
uh, of that time. So he's seen like as very influential. On the other hand, he's also seen very critical. So um, how do you see the Max Hoffman story? Where does it start for you? You know, when I originally started researching this, it was in the context of the 2002, because people were giving Max Hoffman credit for inventing the 2002. And it's not true at all. I think the person who deserves the bulk of the credit for the 2002 success is probably David E. Davis Jr. Why is um, that? Well, because he wrote an article in Car and Driver that was just waxing ecstatic about the 2002. And at the time, you know, that, re that magazine was read by at least a million people. At least a million people who bought a new car every couple of years. Yeah. And that article sent so many people to their BMW dealer to check this car out. And a lot of them ended up buying one. Um, you know, after that came out, BMW could not keep up with the demand for 2002s in the United States. That's so, amazing. What an amazing story. Yeah, it really is. You know, and, and Max Hoffman didn't really advertise all that much. As any of his old dealers have told me, you know, they complained a lot about the lack of advertising. Wow. I mean, what a powerful editorial. Mm -hmm. driver at that time was no, but that's i mean this also shows for us european you know we had this is a it's a tiny place on on the global scale uh, europe and sometimes it's very hard for us to understand how massive the market is in places like the us and canada i mean that alone makes it so crazy for us to understand and like you know also the mentality of like buying new things is a bit of a different approach than it was always in europe in my opinion well, possibly, but you know, um, I think a lot of that was cultivated. Well, the, the fact of buying a new car every couple of years was was really a marketing scheme by General Motors, mm -hmm. and it was it was called planned obsolescence, which is I think a wonderful term, you know, that you can apply Love to a it. lot of things. But <laughs> I will print it on my shirt. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's my a good new, my new my new job title, right? Yeah. Vice President <laughs> of Planned Obsolescence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, to get back to the 2002, you know, one of the things that I found most fascinating when I was researching that car in the BMW archive was how much of the decision making was driven by pending safety and emissions requirements from the United States. So, you know, again, it wasn't really just a single person like Max Hoffman saying, we need X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It was really a, a variety of factors. And I think that the regulatory issues really were the prime drivers of those decisions. You know, I've looked at the, you know, the minutes from board meetings during that time, and that's almost exclusively what they're talking about with the development of these cars. They're talking about how to meet U.S. emission standards. What can we do? What's the solution? I mean, what a, what a great dive into history, like having all this kind of data. I really like the way you approach things. Yeah, but anyway, the crucial thing about that about that particular period is that this is the period where Max Hoffman is regaining distributorship in the United States. And he had been basically shown the door after the fiasco of the 507 and a guy named Fred Oppenheimer, who had been distributing the small cars, mm -hmm. the Isetta 600 and 700, which Max wasn't interested in at all. He was given the entire franchise, didn't really want it, um, he didn't want to deal with the big cars. And here's another weird fact, okay? So I'm digging around trying to figure out 
who is this Fred Oppenheimer guy? And I did find um, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, filing for FedEx, which was his company. Mm -hmm. And it turned out he was actually involved. And, okay, this is like in the 50s. He was involved in the importation of lithium to the United States. Lithium? Seriously? I mean, that's essential for creating batteries for e-cars nowadays. How crazy is that? This guy was definitely 50 years ahead of his time. Yeah, exactly. He made the Isetta a hit in the United States. So that's there's there's that too. Yeah. But but again, these are kind of the weird rabbit holes I find myself going down. And this is where it gets really fun for me because yes. it's so weird. I mean, you told a new version of the Max Hoffman story based on your findings. I mean, that's uh, super interesting the influence he had, uh, the role of Mr. Oppenheimer, all these kind of things that really spice up a soup. I mean, that's the salt in the soup. A soup can be great, but what is a soup without salt? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's really a joy, I think, to be able to restore these people to their proper place within the story. You know, so that their so that their work isn't forgotten, and yeah. and so that their their role in BMW's success isn't forgotten. I mean, to be honest, that's a very nice words for closing, Jackie. <laughs> um, thank you very much, also for the exciting talk about the five or seven, the king of rock and rolls five or seven, to be precise. The I king's think that's very chariot. interesting. <laughs> the king's chariot. That's also nice. <laughs> And um, I think we come to a close here. And uh, thank you so much for your time spending and for you very early in the morning. Oh, my um, pleasure. My pleasure. So Absolutely. I think we touched so many topics that are not specifically for automotive podcasts, but we put them in perspective back in. So I think it's a very, very interesting episode. So thank you so much for this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And everyone who tuned in, please give us some star rating uh, or subscribe to not miss one of the Classic Heart episodes. And uh, Jackie, again, thank you very much. And hear you all in two weeks' time. Thank you. Ciao. That ciao is the best. Thank you very much. <laughs>